Welcome to the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. This episode contains a sermon from June 27th by Pastor Randy, titled, Teach Us to Pray, Part 7. Now, at first I thought my experience was unique, but I found out since then that there's a lot of people who've experienced the exact same thing. And it goes like this. In youth group, growing up, we'd all sit in a circle and have our little Bible lesson and things together. And then at the end of that, our youth leader would say, let's pray. And then she asked, who would like to volunteer to start us off in prayer? And one person would raise their hand and they would pray. And then we'd go around the circle all the way till it came back to that person. Now, as they start to pray, what I did as a kid, because these weren't just real long prayers, okay, because we're, we're youth. But as it was starting to go around, I would think, what am I going to pray? Because I want to pray a good prayer. And so it's going around, I think, the things I'm going to pray for. And then invariably, about two people before me, he prays my prayer. That's what I was going to say. Now, I got to come up with a new prayer between me and this other person. I got to come up with a whole new prayer. The pressure, it was unbearable. And so here's what I learned. That when she says, would somebody like to volunteer to begin our prayer time, I want to raise my hand first. Because I want to pray and I want to pray for everything I can think of and put pressure on everybody else to think that what are they going to pray for? And while I'm confessing, we'd all be in our hands, you know, holding hands in a circle during our prayer time. And also, invariably, I would be holding hands with somebody who had sweaty hands. <laughs> or I'd be holding hands to a squeezer. Somebody either hold my hand real tight or if somebody prays something they really agree with, they'd squeeze it hard. Or worse than that, a sweaty squeezer. <laughs> Nothing worse than that. Here's the thing. We've been talking about prayer for several weeks. Going through the, the model prayer. But oftentimes what we find in our lives is how we prayed as teens doesn't really change a whole lot as we grow up. Our prayers don't change. And the other thing that's going to help us out this morning that, that helps us discover how to pray correctly is that if we listen to what we pray for, because what we pray for reveals how we view God. And, and we've been over this before. For example, if, if you don't pray at all, that shows that, that you don't believe God answers prayer or maybe that God is not powerful enough or maybe that God even exists. If all your prayers are for small things, Help me find a parking place. You know, help me find my keys. That shows you don't believe in a God who's able to do big things. Or if all your prayers are like this, God, give me, bless me, do this for me. That shows you believe God exists to serve you. Or if your prayers are, God, forgive me, God, rescue me. That shows you believe that God is, is like a lifeguard or a conscience cleanser. Or... If all your prayers are about the physical things and never about spiritual things, that shows you really don't believe there's a spiritual world that has an impact on the physical world. 
So here's the thing that we want to understand. Uh, if you want to understand how you view God, listen to the way you pray. And here's the thing about not only most of our prayers today, but why our prayers aren't the way that God wants us to pray that we've been over the last five or six weeks. It's because we're self-centered. And here's the other thing that we've talked about the last couple of weeks. The reason our prayers have become so, centered, self, so self-centered is because our faith has become self-centered. We're not concerned about the kingdom of God. We're concerned about our kingdom. This attitude, we see it come out a lot in the Bible, probably no bigger than John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he was put in prison. And when he was put in prison, he begins to doubt who Jesus is. Which is strange because he used to be so sure. I mean, one time he's just out preaching, doing his thing, and Jesus is starting to walk up, and John just yells out in front of everybody, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Now, you're making me sound strange back there. I told you, James Earl Jones, if you're going to give me a voice, give me that one. (laughs) He just shouts it out, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Another time, John is baptizing. Jesus walks up to him and says, John, baptize me. And, and, and John says, no way. I'm not even worthy to untie your shoes. You're the Messiah. Another time, John's disciples come to him and say, look, all our people, they're leaving. and They're going with Jesus. John says, that's okay. He's the Messiah. He must increase. I must decrease. But then when he finds himself in prison, all of a sudden he begins to doubt. Here's what we read in Matthew chapter 11. Now, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent a message to his disciples and asked him, are you the one who who is to come or should we expect someone else? (laughs) So when John's out preaching, he's so sure, but all of a sudden he's in prison, he begins to doubt. You ever experienced that? A time in your life when you were so sure, so sure who Jesus was and his reality and his presence in his life, but now you've begun to doubt. Usually that happens a lot of times with prosperity. Prosperity can cause people to doubt. Things are going so well in their life. They're just doing so great that they don't have time to go to church, don't have time to open their Bible, don't have time for the things of God. And because things are going so great and they don't have time anymore because they've got all this money and, and things to do and things to fill it with, they just begin to doubt. Some people will doubt because of prosperity, but I tell you this, nothing causes people to doubt like tragedy. You let somebody lose his job, lose his health, lose his family. You let a tragedy happen, a terrorist attack or something like that, and they begin to doubt. Why is that? Why is it that that tragedy will cause a person to doubt? It's easy. Self-centeredness. Think of it this way. If you have a tragedy in your life, That doesn't cause me to doubt. That's a prayer request for me. 
A thousand people die in an earthquake somewhere on the other part of the world. That doesn't cause me to doubt at all. Doesn't even remotely challenge my faith. It's just a prayer request. You let an apartment building collapse in Florida. hundred people or whatever die. That's not a, a, a thing to cause me to doubt. It's just a prayer request. But you let an earthquake happen here. And an apartment building collapse here. And my friends and my loved one are part, in part of that apartment building. Now all of a sudden, God, what are you doing? I don't understand. The reason that we will tend to doubt during tragedy is because of self-centeredness. So John doesn't have any doubts outside of prison. But when he's put in prison, he begins to doubt. And here's what Jesus says to him. He sends back, he sends back a message to John. Jesus replied to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. So what's he saying? He's saying, look, tell John to look what I'm doing. Don't just look what I'm doing in his life. Don't try and judge who I am. Don't try and and, and evaluate me according to your circumstances. Because the minute you try and evaluate who God is and his love for you and everything else uh, about your relationship with God through your circumstances, something's going to happen. Some tragedy is going to happen and you're going to doubt. Because bad things happen to good people all the time. So here's John in prison. Waiting. At first, he's fine. The first few days there, he's probably okay. He's still probably thinking, you know, me and Jesus, we're tight. He's the Messiah. You know, we're like cousins together. You know, we're, we're so tight. And he's probably expecting Jesus to, to come through uh, to prison because he's heard about all these miracles. He's probably expecting Jesus to come in that prison and just all the guards just fall over dead or, or, or they just faint to the floor or they get a bad case of diarrhea or whatever. And, and Jesus opens up the cell door and they fist bump and they go out and they start bringing in the kingdom of God. But it doesn't happen. And after a time, as he's longer and longer in prison, those doubts begin to build. But Jesus says, look, don't judge me based on what you see going on around you or to you. Look at the big picture. Look what's happening. Don't judge me according to the circumstances going on in your life. And then Jesus says this, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. What he's saying is there's going to things happen in your life that you're going to get confused about. He's admitting that, we're going, that he's going to do things, allow things that we're not going to understand. Things are going to happen in our life that we're going to have no clue. We've got why? Why did this happen? But he says, blessed is the person who still believes me, knows in me, has confidence in who I am, despite what's going on in his life. And a lot of you lived up here to understand this, haven't you? You've gone through times like this. It's easy to get that way. If the defining characteristic of God for you growing up was God will not let bad things happen to good people. You're going to get disappointed. Your faith is going to shrink. You're going to begin to doubt. 
Because our whole faith is built on the worst thing possible happening to the best person there ever was. There's no teaching in the first century church about you become a Christ follower and bad things won't happen. If they would have taught that, if they would have taught, look, you can always trust God to come through with you in your circumstances and do exactly what you want him to do in your circumstances. If they had taught that, Christianity would have never made it out of the first century. Because the fact is, all the heroes of the faith and most of those first Christians, they experienced tragedy. They experienced persecution at the hands of Rome in the temple. Nobody has stood up and ever said, the reason that we know that Christ is real is because bad things don't happen to good people. But the fact is, it happens all the time. And what we need to, to understand is that the reason that people begin to doubt when bad things happen is because of self-centeredness. And our prayers reflect that. Our prayers reflect that. If we're going to get it right on prayer, if we're going to learn to pray the way God wants us to, we have to get past that self-centeredness. And so last week we talked about a perspective that we have to have if we're going to get past self-centeredness. We, we have to lose that perspective, that way of thinking that I deserve to be happy, that God's chief goal in life is to make me happy. And this week we're going to look at another characteristic that we've got to get around if we're going to, to, to pray the way God wants us to pray. We have to look at another way to get rid of that self-centeredness. And that is we have to lose the idea that God's an on-demand God. That he is supposed to do what I want him to do when I want him to do it. All right, so I want to name some TV shows now. That if you love Snapchat, you'll have no idea what I'm talking about. What about Green Acres? Anybody remember that? Petticoat Junction? All right, Honeymooners? Bonanza, Gunsmoke, Big Valley, those westerns. You've been old, old, been old Yeah. Uh, Love Boat, anybody? Fantasy Island, The Plane, The Plane. Anybody? Okay. The other day, Lisa and I were walking down Campbell Airstrip, plane goes over, go, The Plane, The Plane. You know, we just. Uh, Beverly Hillbillies? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing that you Snapchat people aren't going to grasp. If you're going to watch those shows, let's say like Bonanza, it come on Sunday night at 8 o'clock. Because I remember that because we'd go home and we'd watch Bonanza after church on Sunday night. Sunday night at 8 o'clock, you had to be there in front of the TV at 8 o'clock. Or it was, that's it. You just missed it. It's gone. Never to be seen again. And you had to watch the commercials. All of them. Now with Netflix and Hulu and DVRs and a uh, hundred different other viewing platforms, you can watch what you want when you want to watch it. Because we are in the on-demand generation. And I guess that's great for watching TV. Because I don't watch anything I can't DVR first. Because I want to fast forward to all those commercials. 
But we have a generation that, that's this on-demand generation. And that's reflected in our prayers. We see that in how we pray. How about this? I prayed and prayed that God would take away my depression, but it didn't happen. I prayed and prayed that God restore my marriage or my parents' marriage, but it didn't happen. Hey, I tithe. And I'm very generous, but I'm still struggling financially. What's up with that, God? I pray that this person may be healed and they weren't healed. What's up with that, God? And people will begin to doubt and they'll walk away from the faith frustrated. They'll think that either God doesn't care or God's not listening or maybe just doesn't exist at all. And this is common in our on-demand generation. What makes you think that God is like a cosmic sugar daddy to give you everything that you want? Or that he's like a cosmic genie. You know, you rub him three times the right way, then you get your prayer request answered. Or a cosmic vending machine. You put in a tithe and a prayer, push the button, you get out your prayer request. God's a creator. We're the created. He's the potter. We're just a lump of clay that he can mold any way he wants. God doesn't exist to serve us. We exist to serve him. Why do we have so much trouble with this? Why, why, why do we have so much trouble understanding this? So, three things that I want us to look at if we're going to overcome this God-on-demand view and help us pray the way we're supposed to pray. Okay? So three things that's going to help us get past this view that our culture has sort of built into us that God's supposed to do what we want when we want it. The first thing is this. God's heart is always loving. God's heart is always loving. See, there are some things... You understand if you're a parent that you always love your kids. There may be times when you don't like your kids. There may be times you wish you could trade them in for a newer model. There may be times when you want to knock them in the next week, but you always love your kids. And even though, even though it's within your power to do everything that they want you to do for them, Although you can do what they ask, you don't always do everything they ask for. Even though you have the power to do that. For example, in the morning they're going to school, you go, don't forget your lunch. Okay, sure. They walk out the door, you get a phone call at 1130. I forgot my lunch. Can you bring it to me? Okay. Next morning, don't forget your lunch. Yep. Another call, 1130. I forgot my lunch. Okay, I'll bring it to you. The third day. Now, don't forget your lunch again. Don't worry. I won't. I'm going to get it. Another call at 1130. I forgot my lunch. I'm sorry. You're on your own. You could bring your lunch. 
It's not because you're trying to punish them. It's because you want to do, develop something in them. Like when they come home from school and you say, do your homework. Okay, I'll get there in, in, in a little bit. I'll start my homework. A couple hours later, did you get your homework done? No, but I'm fixing to start it right after. And a couple hours later, did you get your homework done? No, but I'm, I'm about to do it right now. At 10 o'clock, they come and say, will you help me do my homework so I can get it done faster? Sorry, maybe two hours ago, but you're on your own now. And you don't not help them with the homework because you don't love them. You actually don't help them with the homework because you do love them. Because you're trying to develop something in them. God doesn't always do everything that we want. We need to understand that when God doesn't do what we want, even though we know he could and we believe he should, it doesn't mean he doesn't love us. What does Romans say? Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. God doesn't prove his love for you by answering your prayers. God proved his love for you by dying on the cross. And if you are going to get over this, God, but I want you to do this. God, you should do this. I believe you can do this. Why don't you do this for me? If you're going to get over that, you have to understand that, that it's not about a lack of love. God's heart is always loving. The second thing you have to understand is that God's ways are higher than our ways. A child... Is born with a handicap. Why'd that happen, God? Or, Randy, why'd that happen? I don't know. Got nothing for you. Your loved one dies in an accident. Drunk driver. Drunk driver lives, your loved one dies. Or a terrorist attack or, or, or some random shooting. Why'd that happen? I don't know. I've got nothing for you. But what I do have for you is this. God's ways is always higher than our ways. Here's what, here's what we read in Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as the heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I can take confidence in knowing that, that God's a lot wiser than I am. And I may not know what he's always up to and what he's doing, but I can trust his heart. I can trust that he loves me. I can trust his goodness. I can trust his character. And I may not see what's going on, but I can, really, I can know that down the road, I may look at things differently. For a couple has a child and their first child is born healthy. They have another child. It has a handicap. Oh, God, why? What's going on? And, and, and they're broken. But then you go to them six or seven years later, and they go, boy, this child's such a blessing to our life. We couldn't imagine our lives without this child. We wouldn't want it any other way. Or maybe you said this. You've experienced something that's just devastated you. And you said, Looking back on maybe months, maybe years later, I don't know. Timelines use a little bit different for everybody. But they say something like this. I never want to go through something like that again. And I wouldn't wish that on anybody, not even my worst enemy. But I wouldn't take what God did in my life for that for nothing. Because my eternity has changed. It has changed because of what God did through that tragedy. Why? Because God's ways are higher than our ways. 
He has the wisdom sometimes we don't understand. And we can trust his character. We can trust his love. We can trust his goodness. That his intent is to bring about our best for him. Third thing. The third thing that will help us get past this on the view of God is to realize that God's presence is always enough. Here's our verse, Psalm 23, 4. We all know this. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Or how we say, how we grew up learning it this way, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Even though I'm going through this, this tough time where, where my enemies are around me, when I could die at any moment, when my life is right there, when, when I just feel nothing but, but the pressure and the pressure and pressure, and it seems like I'm not going to make it through, I'm not afraid. Because your presence is enough. How many of you know, because you've been through enough life, you know that you experience God's presence, his fullness, who he is, a lot more in the valleys than you ever do on the mountaintops. I didn't get any amens there. Maybe that was just me. So before you say, God, why didn't you? God, you should. God, why don't you do this? If you'll stop, remember, God's heart's always loving. His ways are higher than your ways, and His presence is enough. Does anybody remember that book? It was famous a few years ago, The Prayer of Jabez. A lot of people read that little book. And they begin to pray. God, give me more. Expand my borders. Give me cars. Give me land. Give me, give me, give me. That's not what that prayer was about. Bruce Wilkinson wrote that book. Sold 20 million copies. I have no idea what his contract was. But any way you look at it, that was a boatload of money. Okay? So what did he do with his big pile of money? You know what he did? He moved to South Africa and began ministering to poor people. That's not a person who thinks, I need more for me. What that prayer was about was God, this is Bruce Brooks in his book, it's God, let people see the supernatural activity of you in my life. God, you have blessed me. I want to be a blessing to you. Let people see what you're doing in my life. But we'll never pray that way as long as we keep a self-sitterness going on. As, as long as that's what our life is all about. It's not about being self-centered. So, God, like a good, loving, heavenly Father, is not going to respond too well to that on-demand view of God. 
Just like you wouldn't respond to well as a parent when your kids say, you have to do this for me. You need to do this for me. God, or parent, why don't you do this? But despite all that, there is one time, one time where God is an on-demand God. It's when you are ready to repent and ask him for forgiveness and you want to surrender your life to him. He's there. He's ready to say, okay, that's what I've been waiting on. I'm ready to respond to that. If only we learn to pray that way about all the things that we pray for. God, I'm ready to surrender to you. If that was the start of it all. We would pray a lot differently, wouldn't we? And you know what? I could go back and be a part of that youth group, and I wouldn't be worried about what people pray before me or after me. I'd say, I just want to say, God, it's all yours. God, may a revival happen in my life. May, may I just be totally yours 100%. And I wouldn't wind up praying the way that I prayed when I was a teenager for so many years of my life. God told us how to pray. Our Father, oh, good, loving, heavenly Father, who's in heaven, sovereign, in charge of it all. He made it all. He's in control of it all. He holds it all in his hands. Has measured out the oceans. May your name be holy. You are a holy God. There's no one like you. So what's our natural response to understanding who God is? That he's a loving heavenly father who, who created everything, who's in charge of it all, who's a holy God. What other response could we have besides God? It's about your kingdom, not mine. It's about your will, not mine. I surrender to you. And God, I'm dependent upon you. This is the one that, that took me a long time to get a hold of. Because we tend to think of it physical things. That just like Israel depended upon God for their daily bread as they were traveling through the wilderness, we're just as dependent upon God for everything. You may think you've done it yourself and you can do it yourself. No, no, no. You're, I don't care how much you have. You're just as dependent upon God as the Israelites that had to get out of the tent every morning and eat their daily bread. But here's where I struggle at is realizing I'm dependent upon him for it all. For everything I do or think I can do. Christina mentioned a couple of months ago how sometimes she would think, oh, I got this. I can teach this lesson. I can do this. Fine. And she said, no, no, I got to depend upon God for this. And there's been times I thought, oh, yeah, I can do that. Boss. I can preach that sermon. I can do that. No, no, no. I got to depend upon God for it all. That's what he's saying. He's saying, God, give us this day or day bread. We're completely dependent upon you. And then forgive us as we forgive others. Because every day, what? Somebody's going to do something that's going to get you upset. It's going to happen. Or you're going to do something. And you want to bathe in God's forgiveness every day and be able to forgive others. And then we're studying Job on Sunday morning. 
The book begins by God allowing Satan to come and put Job to the ringer. God allowing Satan to do that. We read the same type of language before the crucifixion where, where Jesus says, Peter, Satan has asked, asked permission to sift you like wheat. So that's when we get that part of prayer, God deliver me from the evil one. He's trying to, to tear down my faith. He's coming, he's trying to tear me down, but God deliver me from that. Just as Jesus talked about Peter and said, but I'm praying that you're going to be restored afterwards, that, that, that you're going to, 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 to walk through this and be delivered from it. God, help me to, to have the right attitude through the temptations that come and, and to be delivered from them rather than giving in to them. That's what God wants. He doesn't want the, but God, I deserve this prayer. He doesn't want the, gimme, 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 gimme. Now listen, you pray that prayer afterwards, add anything else that's on your heart. Anything else. Anybody else? What other requests are on your heart? Throw those in. Put those in there. We're supposed to take it all to him, right? But how can we ever expect revival if we never get it right on prayer? Because most prayers start with revival, or most revivals start with prayer. Sorry about that. I guess it could go the other way too. All right. So let's get it right here. Let's begin praying and getting ourselves right. Thank you for tuning into the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. For more information, check out our website at gbcak.org.